You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Yoga Inspiration Podcast. This episode is a talk I gave after a full primary series class, and I go into a deep discussion about the seeds of himsa or the seeds of violence in the individual, in you and me and the individuals, and how that relates to the seeds of violence in a more systemic or societal way. The yoga practice is at its best, an opportunity to break perpetual cycles of suffering. And the cycle of violence is certainly one that engenders mass suffering of many beings, human beings, all over the world throughout all time. As long as people in positions of power allow themselves to be guided by fear, anger, hatred, the cycle of violence will continue. As long as the dominant groups of society continue to, well, dominate, there will never be justice or peace. As long as privileged people turn a blind eye to the suffering of others and let their decisions be motivated by short-term gain, the inequities of the world will just continue. It's important for me to note that when I speak about the removing of the seed of violence, I'm not speaking to members of marginalized groups to tell them how to respond or manage their energy. I, I am speaking to members of the dominant groups of society who wield positions of power. I believe in yoga as a much-needed revolution, but it's not as cut and dry as it sounds. And it certainly isn't about just sending love and light from a safe bubble, you know, thoughts and prayers only have the power to change the world if there's consequence. There is no love without consequential action. If you love your child, you will act and behave towards your child in a particular way. Love, to me, is an action verb. If you say you believe in love, think about what consequential action you're willing to take based on your love. If you profess love towards all beings, then ask yourself what you're doing today to express that. What actions are you taking to express the reality that you say you adhere to, which is that you know you believe that all beings are worthy of love? If you're sorry about something, the best way to express your remorse is to not repeat the same action over and over again. There's no lasting apology without behavior change. We must change individually in measurable ways. We must change as a society in measurable ways. So as a yoga practitioner, continually ask yourself, what are you committing to changing within yourself and your community? What are you doing right now that embodies your values, the values of ahimsa, the values of liberation? The yoga practice it really has to be more than just pretty pictures and fun-looking shapes. Yoga is a path that promises full liberation. And as long as there's a seed of suffering, a seed of violence, a seed of delusion in you, that cycle will continue. Particularly members of any dominant group of society, I believe, are especially responsible for doing the work to weed out the dormant, the sprouting, and the full fruits of violence within their own hearts. People in positions of power are responsible for how they use that power. If they don't unpack the chains of their own limited beliefs and work to dismantle systems of violence, it's too easy to just fall back into unconscious biases and repeat the past in a new form. There are many spiritual practitioners who feel far away from the shocking and saddening realities of our world today. But when you sit silently by and tacitly participate in a culture of any type, you become a cog in the wheel of whatever that culture is. 
whether you yourself are the perpetrator or not, you're belonging to that culture means that you, that you share in it. Now, I'm not writing this to shame anybody or to ostracize anyone. I'm, I'm a part of this culture too. We all are. I'm sharing this so that you as a yogi can be inspired to do the work, to remove the seeds of violence within yourself, remove the seeds of suffering within yourself, remove the seeds of ignorance within yourself, and then be empowered to play a role in removing those same seeds from our world. If yoga is a personal revolution, it has to begin with you and me. You can't stop there. If we can break the cycle of violence, suffering, and ignorance within ourselves, then we become leaders of change in the world. If we don't break that cycle, we begin to act. It's too easy to just perpetuate the same old cycles of suffering and they'll sprout again and we'll think it's different, but it'll actually be the same. For everyone who's listening, I also want to address one thing so that you can understand the context in which I speak. Many people see me as a white yoga teacher and have called upon me to speak out in regards to my racial identity, but it took me 40 years to understand my own racial identity. After much soul searching, I came to the conclusion that I'm actually a white passing multiracial person. I'm both Japanese and Scottish, and I have really felt the otherness that many non-white people feel in the United States. I grew up looking different than everyone else. I, you know, my grandfather and my mother lived in a world where they faced threats to their life, basically because of the color of their skin and their ethnicity. Now, I myself have never faced that because, as I said, I'm white passing. People assume that I'm white. My story, however, illustrates one of the definitions of white privilege and how I've benefited from this in numerous ways. So I, I want to share that I don't consider myself to be an authority on issues of race. I speak from the experience that I have in the spiritual discipline of yoga and from my own social and historical context. You know, I'm a, I'm a multiracial female born and raised in South Florida to a middle-class family. And I have committed more than 20 years to the spiritual practice of yoga. From this, I have developed a great faith that we can root out as yoga practitioners, the seeds of suffering within ourselves. We can do that by putting in the work to break the cycles of ignorance, break the cycles of violence, to break the cycles of suffering. It's not as, you know, cut and dry as, 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 as dualistic as we want it to be. It's not easy enough. It's, it's not the path rather to go and say, to go out into the world and judge and, and categorize people based on what we believe is right or wrong or this or that. Instead, what we want to think about as yogis is to unpack our own biases, to pack, unpack our own acts of violence to, towards ourselves and towards others, to unpack the seeds of suffering and ignorance within ourselves. As yogis, we like to say that we stand on the foundation of love. Well, sometimes love takes different forms. You know, members of the dominant group of society may show love by lifting up, listening to, and protecting those who are non-dominant. Members of the non-dominant groups of society may show love, especially self-love, by speaking up and asking that their voices and needs be heard and cared for. To be clear, it's up to each of us to nurture the seeds of change within our own hearts and in the world. It doesn't serve anyone for us to create new pass or fail tests or purity standards to judge other yogis. When members of non-dominant groups feel anger, that anger is justifiable. When we're shocked and outraged and saddened by grievous acts of harm towards other human beings, those are justifiable and real emotions. And we want to process those 
and understand what role we play in the perpetuation of cycles of violence. Compassion does not mean not to speak out when things are wrong. Compassion means that, for me, that I refuse to allow myself to hate, even those whom I may see as part of the problem. Hate, it for me, is always part of the cycle of violence, a cycle that I seek to break. I will allow myself to be angry, very angry at times, but I will not allow myself to act in hate. I did that once before and it just didn't work out very well. It created so much more suffering. So I speak up now, but not for vengeance. I'll speak up for justice. I will do my best to act in love for all beings and take the consequence of this statement, not as a fluffy spiritual cloud that just floats through the sky, but what I hope will be the foundation of an entirely new paradigm of living. Thank you so much for joining the practice today. It was a wonderful practice. So nice to see so many of you joining from different parts of the world and staying committed to the practice amidst the ever-changing circumstances of our lives. So as we begin to practice yoga, the emphasis on postures seems first and foremost. So many of us, we've come to the practice through the vehicle of poses. You know, maybe you saw a picture on social media somewhere and said, thought, oh, this looks interesting. I would also like to do that. You know, I came to my very first yoga class because I looked in through the window of a gym and I saw a bunch of people in headstand. And I thought, that looks cool. I want to do a headstand. I had no idea that it was a spiritual practice, anything like that. I just wanted to do a headstand. There's nothing wrong with coming to your yoga practice because you're inspired by a yoga posture. Don't feel bad about that. Don't feel like, oh, I'm superficial. I just want to do headstand. No, it's not like that. This is very often what happens. We are initially attracted to the poses. The, there is an old story about Krishnamacharya. Krishnamacharya is kind of considered to be the father of all modern yoga. He was almost, almost all modern yoga. Many of the main yoga lineages, which are practiced in our contemporary age, uh, can trace their roots back some way to Krishnamacharya, Ashtanga yoga, Iyengar yoga, restorative yoga, even yin yoga, um, and uh, vinyasa yoga. All of these can trace their roots back to Krishnamacharya. So uh, Krishnamacharya, uh, at some moment, went around and he made, in his day, when we didn't have YouTube or Instagram or Zoom, he went around and made yoga demonstrations around India, and he called it yoga propaganda. Well, this was also in the time when the word propaganda was, um, you know, quite popular. We could say it's not in use now. You know, if you use the word propaganda, you sound like, you know, an anachronism. So I'm going to make some propaganda for my yoga class. <laughs> okay, all right. So in those days, he went around and said, "I'm making all these yoga demonstrations as yoga propaganda." yoga promotion. He was trying to promote yoga. How can you promote yoga, a state of spiritual consciousness, which is a state of oneness, peace, and ultimate resolution with yourself and with all beings? How can you do that? Well, you can't do that. What, I'm going to sit there at peace in the corner? No, we can't do this. So I mean, you can, but is, is a, not really going to inspire people to break the chain of the everyday life, kind of the, the wheel of what we call samsara, the wheel of existence. So Krishnamacharya said, we need yoga propaganda. So he went out and he made yoga demonstrations, doing crazy looking poses, putting his legs behind his head, having his students do 
crazy looking arm balances and handstands and all sorts of other things. Maybe like you have seen even today on Instagram and YouTube and these sorts of things. Maybe you can think back, why did you want to start yoga? Oh, I saw this picture of somebody with their legs behind the head and I thought, I want to try, you know? So then now we're continuing this yoga tradition in that way. It's not bad to come in because we're inspired by the physical practice. In fact, we need the physical as a doorway into the spiritual. There are some people, they try to jump right into the spiritual and it really is just imagination. You know, they jump immediately into this desire for, you know, otherworldly fantastical experiences and it becomes just another imagination, another addiction, another way of tripping out and zoning out. So we use these yoga poses, which are very exciting, very enticing, very seductive, we could say, to entice ourselves to let go a little bit of the momentum and inertia that is normally there towards our everyday lives, towards all of what we could call to be the uh, attractions and aversions of the mind. So when we have the yoga poses as the entry, what's so important is that we keep practicing. As long as you keep practicing and you don't change and you don't suddenly quit yoga and start doing, I don't know, something else, whatever is attractive in the next moment, as long as you keep doing yoga asana, sooner or later, the yoga asana begins to work inside of you because the postures are a little bit like a bait and switch propaganda. We show you this cool pose. Yes, you'll do this cool pose, but actually... What you're attracted to when you see the asana is not so much the asana. Sure, there's something in the ego that says, I would like to do a headstand, you get attracted to that. But something in your soul gets attracted to the state of mind, the state of being that that yogi, that practitioner is embracing and holding space of when they're in that asana. Something inside of you, your soul, your spirit is attracted to that, but your conscious mind is not aware of it. But anyhow, that's okay. As long as you keep practicing yoga, sooner or later, the asana begins to work. It's magic inside of you and awaken different channels of consciousness, different feelings. The experience of practice shifts you and changes you. The quality of your thoughts starts changing. Even if you don't intend to change your thoughts, the quality of your thoughts changes. Your awareness changes of the world around you, and you suddenly start realizing things about yourself. You suddenly start waking up to different levels of truth about yourself and about the world around you. And then as long as you keep practicing, as long as you stay with the methodology of yoga, then sooner or later, there will be a door that will take you deeper, that will tell you, oh, this yoga practice is more than just fancy shapes and twisting and bending. There's something going on inside of me. I am changing. My world is changing. And you want to be nicer. Maybe first towards other people. And then eventually also towards yourself. And then we start to realize, oh, this yoga is really something special. My whole life is changing. And it's hard to see the connection between how you can do these asanas and how you can find to live a more peaceful life. But this is the sort of inner journey that we embark upon. So yoga is more than just a bunch of fancy poses. The poses are understood to be the foundation of our inner experience, but the end goal is always the spiritual experience. The end goal is to cultivate a different attitude towards ourselves and a different attitude towards our world. 
One of the most important concepts that you can experience in the yoga practice, and this is the first of the moral and ethical principles that are outlined in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, is this yogic concept called ahimsa. Most of yoga practitioners, after a little while, are familiar with the principle of ahimsa. Coming from the Sanskrit word himsa, which means harmful or violent, destructive, negative, you know, dark, harmful. Ahimsa, when we have the A placed in front of the word himsa, what we understand is that this means the opposite of himsa, ahimsa, often translated as nonviolence, often translated as, you know, non-aggression. We can look even deeper to understand what ahimsa means. So if you think about himsa, if you think for a moment, well, what is the opposite of violence? First of all, yes, the opposite of violence is to remove the seed of violence from within yourself. But if we think about what is the opposite of violence, how can I be nonviolent? How can I embody the opposite of violence? It's not only to be nonviolent, because this is a non-state. It's a removal state. Uh, uh, It's to go a step further. There's an invitation to embrace kind of a positive definition of ahimsa, to embrace a positive notion of the embodiment of whatever you find to be the antidote to violence is within yourself. So immediately what happens when people hear the word ahimsa is now it's become associated with a particular type of uh, diet. So we immediately think, oh, ahimsa means I have to be vegan. I can tell you there are many vegan people in the world who are very himsa. They are very violent inside of themselves and very violent towards others. Ahimsa is not about what food you eat. Yes, if you think about it, suddenly you feel from your heart, oh, I don't want to harm this being just because I like the taste of something. I don't want to harm this being just because you know I enjoy this. I'm attached to this particular food from my childhood, so now I have to kill this being just to eat it. And then you feel this. You think, oh, no, not for me. But then if you take this logically, the next step forward is also, oh, this human being. I don't want to yell at this human being. How can I harm this human being with my words, my actions, my judgments? This is also himsa. Eventually, and usually, the last place that we start to really think of ahimsa, we really start to feel, I don't want to harm this being, is ourselves. We have so much violence inside of ourselves towards ourselves. Self-directed violence and self-directed negativity takes so many forms and it's so overwhelming. The yoga sutras say that when the person is established in ahimsa, ahimsa pratishtayam, when we are established, then we have the experience that we live in a peaceful world. So we, you know, sometimes this is translated as the literal translation. When that yoga practitioner is established in nonviolence, then around that person, no violence is possible. But another, another translation to think about it is when you yourself have removed all the seeds of violence violence towards yourself, violence towards others, violence towards the world. And we can take a look at what violence means, but when that is removed within you, your world is a peaceful place. So we have very few human beings in the history of humanity that can really show us the way to live with the seed of violence removed. What can we do with hatred? In a world where there is so much hatred, where, you know, emblazoned by the tool of internet anonymity, there are small rockets of hatred that launch and arrive at your inbox uninvited, you know? You didn't invite somebody, hey, can you send me some hate today? You just opened your social media account and somebody sent some message, I hate your voice. Oh, thank you. 
such a lovely greeting this morning. Oh, wonderful. What else is there? Oh, I hate your foot. Oh, wonderful. Actually, I never get, I hate your foot. I don't know if anybody is a, watches my YouTube channel or reads comments. Nobody on YouTube hates my feet. In fact, it's strange thing that people are obsessed with the foot on YouTube, but um, we leave that discussion over there in that world in its own realm. So anyhow, we're thinking, you know, in this world where we're bombarded by other people's violence, they don't even realize they're being violent because this is just the, the, the world that they live in has accepted violence as the status quo. And how do, what are different forms of violence, ways that we speak in a violent way, ways that we occupy other people's space, ways that we disregard the feelings and impact and, and implications that our actions have on others. These are all acts of violence that we engage in moment to moment. Ignorance is a form of violence towards others, especially when our actions intentionally or unintentionally harm others. This is a form of violence towards others and ultimately towards ourselves. We can look back to very few examples in the history of humanity to understand what does it mean to live in true nonviolence. One story from the life of the Buddha, there were a group of many angry, angry people that were mad at the Buddha because the Buddha was a revolutionary. He came in and said, instead of only a small subset of society giving, being given access to the spiritual tools of realization, anybody who seeks to practice, then that person can achieve the state of realization, the state of uh, samadhi, the state of liberation. Who, who is entitled to the spiritual practice? Anybody who desires to practice and is willing to put in the work. This is a revolution in the time of the Buddha. There were also other things that the Buddha rejected and changed and, and sort of realized in his, own, in his own way that was a challenge to the status quo of his time. So whenever you challenge the status quo, people react. There's a strong uh, reaction to any challenge to the status quo. So there were a group of people uh, that came to voice their concerns and make a big protest against the Buddha. And they arrived and they protested and said, you're wrong. Only this group of people should have access to spiritual teachings. This is ridiculous. What? You're a bad man. You're destroying the fabric of society. You're giving this stuff out to everybody and they're never going to take care of it. And what you think about consciousness is wrong. And what you think about this is wrong. And how you're training your monks and your nuns this is all wrong. You're wrong. You're bad. And the Buddha said, oh, look what you've tried to give me. You have arrived with a presence of hate. I don't accept your presence. Please take your hate and go away. <laughs> and then they make them more mad. You know, and then, no, you have to listen to us. You have to engage us. This is, we came here. He said, no, this is your hate. Like a present you brought me. I don't accept this present. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs> you know, and this is a really interesting, he didn't hate them. He didn't throw hate back at them. But I can tell you when somebody launches a missile of hate towards you, there are so many temptations to enter into a cycle of himsa, a cycle of violence, engaging, defending yourself, talk, you know, going into explaining why this person is bad or labeling the person who has launched a missile of hate towards you as someone who is evil, someone who themselves is worthy of hate. To hate them in any way continues the cycle of hate. And it violates this principle of ahimsa. If we only think about ahimsa as, okay, I need to eat this particular food, this is useless, honestly. You know, we have to think about this as, how can I remove the seed of violence within me so that even when someone who is violent towards me, I can take a higher path. I can see a wisdom path. 
in difficult circumstances. I'm not going to turn, you know, a, a, away from the truth. I'll stay with the truth, right? So sometimes people hear that story of the Buddha and say, oh, you know, the Buddha just, uh, you know, ignored and bypassed the, 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 the demand that was being pressed upon him. But the reality of it is unfortunately true, uh, is, you know, and we can see this in terms of our neurobiology. Anytime yourself or another being, whether human or non-human, anytime another being is caught in a cycle of hate, the nervous system is in what's called a heightened state of arousal, which is sometimes documented as the fight or flight response. And when we're in this heightened state of arousal, we are unable to think rationally. We're unable to come down off of that cycle. That cycle must be stopped by the individual themselves. A cycle of hate, when you are hating somebody, that emotion lives inside of you and has a cycle of, <laughs> some they say, say a minimum of 20 minutes. Sometimes if you're, you know, if you're a quick, if you have an interesting, if you have some techniques to break the cycle, it can be shorter. But if you don't continue to hate, the moment you think, I hate this person, that hate lives inside of you for a full 20 minutes if you don't have any tools to talk yourself down. Now, in that moment, while you're hating that person, if that person came to you and said, oh, don't hate me, I'm so sorry, I'm a nice person, it's, it's not going to work because you're in your heightened state of arousal. Statistically, in terms of our neurobiology, scientists have studied that whenever a human being is in a heightened state of arousal, an anger loop, a hatred loop, a bitterness loop, any of that, whenever we are thinking violent thoughts, we're mad. You know, we've all been mad. Uh, some people though, oh, I'm a yogi, you should never be mad. This is ridiculous. We're doing yoga so we can free ourselves from it, but we can't expect that from our first breath, the first time we step onto the mat, now we're free of it. No, we've got to do the work. The work involves getting very, very clear on all the ways in which we are violent and all the ways which, in which we participate in cycles of violence. So the moment you have hated somebody, you've been annoyed you know, whatever that is, maybe you have a, you know, a justified reason, or maybe it's completely unjustified. doesn't matter. Whenever you're triggered, a being is triggered, the decisions that you make in that heightened state of arousal are statistically proven to be disadvantageous for yourself and for the whole world. There's some very specific things. When someone is in a fight or flight mode, when someone is in an anger loop, they take decisions with limited information based on personal self-interest in a lack of compassion that seemed to harm other beings for personal gain. And it's always short-term gain based on scarcity. There's a documented inability to engage in empathy. The parts of the brain that show empathy when the person is in an anger loop are turned off. Short-term gain, short-term scarcity thinking, and self-interest. And this is something that is long, something that's documented by science. It's not something, you know, that's like, oh, this is a saying from this uh, Swami. From it, it, Definitely the Swamis have said this and spiritual beings have said this. But these are scientists who have put people who are angry in an MRI and scan their brains. So we can really understand, oh, this is something real. Okay, so what can you do when you are triggered into a state of violence? Patanjali says that, at this moment, whenever you have labeled someone as violent, as evil, as negative, at that moment, it's not the time to take action because we can see, again, from the science studies around neurobiology, that you cannot take intelligent action at that moment. 
as a very minimum, you need a 20 minute pause for your nervous system to calm down. And during that 20 minutes, you cannot re-trigger yourself. I would imagine that every single person here at some moment or another has been irritated at something in their life and then started practice. You don't know when, but at some moment during the practice, suddenly you're not mad anymore. In the beginning, oh, I hate this person. I'm doing sun salutation. Hate this person. Oh, I hate this person. So annoying, annoying, annoying. Then you don't know what happened. End of practice. It's no more hate. Where did it go? Gone. You have distracted your mind for enough time and you work breath and body into a different state. Change the regulation. Instead of fight or flight response, you're in a calm and connect response called the relaxation response, the antidote to that heightened state of arousal. This is so important. When you practice, you have a tool to break the cycle of violence. Now, this is extremely important. This cannot stop just because you finished your practice. If you're in your life and you realize, oh, I'm triggered, I'm hating this person, hating this person, hating this person, you must pause and stop taking action in that moment. Hatred is violence. Hatred of another is violence. Now, here's something that's dangerous. Anytime you feel justified in your hate, and I speak from personal experience in this, anytime you feel this person has wronged me, therefore, I feel entitled to hate this person, then your victimhood is worn like a badge of protection that says, my hate is justified. And this is unfortunately one of the most destructive cycles that you can be in. The more you feed that, the bigger your hate becomes. And there are cycles and loops of violence that perpetuate on this notion of victimhood. This again is something that is not only talked about in the spiritual circles, but this is something that's documented in contemporary psychology. What this is called is the victim hero perpetrator cycle. And there are three roles that are often taken in this psychological triangle. When you're engaging in, in what's called victimhood, then this allows you to wear a banner that justifies your hatred of anyone that you label as a perpetrator, someone who has harmed you. I can hate this person. They have harmed me. You open your door for a being who looks like a hero. And then as soon as that hero falls off the pedestal, then they become another perpetrator. The hidden violence within this cycle is that every victim has the potential to become a perpetrator themselves under the banner of, I have been harmed, therefore I am allowed to harm another. And the cycle of hate continues. And the cycle of hate continues over and over again. How do we break free of it? This is why we're here to do the practice, to humbly admit, I carry the seed of violence within me. And each time I judge another, I perpetuate that cycle. Each time I act from judgment, I perpetuate the cycle of violence. Even if I think I have a righteous you know, claim to go out into the world and carry this banner of anger, what I do to another, I do to myself. When I hate another, I hate myself. When I judge another, I judge myself. To recognize this is to humbly put in the work of the practice and say, there are seeds of violence within myself. Every act of judgment and every act of violence towards another comes from a seed of violence carried within. That violence is always directed towards yourself. So the practice asks you to go in and say, where are the places that I hate myself? 
Where are the places of unforgiveness within myself? Where are the places of judgment, of rejection, of self-loathing within myself? And how can I work to love myself first and change the cycle of violence in here in me to a cycle of love, of forgiveness, of kindness within myself? And this is, you know, Patanjali says that when we are harassed by negative thoughts, vitarka badane pratipaksha bhavanam, vitarka badane, when we're harassed by negative thoughts, these vitarkas, pratipaksha bhavanam, try to plant the seed of a new thought, break the cycle. We cannot go out into the world until we have made peace within ourselves. We cannot make peace in the world if peace does not exist within inside of ourselves. How can we look on the world and say, oh, there's so much war here. This person is warring with that person. That country is fighting with this country. This person is yelling at that person. When we're yelling at ourselves inside, when we and ourselves are either passively or directly engaging in those very same acts of warfare. To come into the practice, our first step of healing and breaking this cycle of violence is to, number one, wake up to the truth that, yes, I too have participated in what is a systemic global culture of violence. And I've participated in that by hating myself, by hating my body, by unforgiving myself, by being bitter towards life, bitter towards the world. And now I come to the yoga practice. Before I try to go save the world, let me just try to be a little nicer to myself. Let me just try to forgive the people in my life. Let me just try to be a little kinder my words a little kinder, a little softer around the edges. Let me try to look in the mirror, not hate what I see. Let me try to be in my body and, and be okay with it, not ask it to be different every time I look at it. We start there, understand that this is the ahimsa we search for. Sure, you can eat whatever you want, but the idea is to have this come from a deep place of what is love, what is the attitude of Patanjali calls maitri, friendliness, loving kindness. And when we can embrace that heart, that spirit within ourselves, every action taken from a heart filled with maitri, of loving kindness, that action is filled with compassion, with kindness, with empathy, with consideration for the feelings and of others and the repercussions of our actions on others and the world at large. This also is documented in the same scientific study that recognized that in the fight or flight response, our decision-making capacity is self-interested, non-compassionate, judgmental, and short-sighted. Once the same, when the same individuals were given exercises to elicit the relaxation response, deep breathing, diaphragmatic breathing, other tools that help the mind calm down, mindfulness practices, attention to the breath, redirecting the mind into the sensations of the body, the numerous techniques to elicit the relaxation response, one of which everybody who's practicing yoga should know is you squeeze your mula bandha and this stimulates the vagus nerve, which helps you relax. You know, don't do it all the time. There are times not to squeeze the mula bandha. We can talk about that later. But uh, if you're feeling tense, a little pelvic floor activation increases the tone of the vagus nerve and can help you relax. But what type of decisions do people make when they're in a relaxed space? They make decisions that are more advantageous for themselves and for others because they can take into account the long-term implications, not only of their actions towards themselves, 
but their actions towards their world and towards other people who are around. So there are other things that happen when the person is relaxed. They don't take decisions based on scarcity. They take decisions under the assumption that uh, that there is abundance, that there's more than enough to go around, that they don't need to protect and hold and hoard and be greedy about resources. They can share. So there's a concept of sharing. Then taking into account through empathy, the feelings and thoughts of how one's actions impact others is the very definition of compassion. So that instead of acting on self-interest alone, we can look at that being, which doesn't look like us, speak like us, talk like us, or think like us and say, hey, wait a minute. If I do this, this negatively impacts this other being, whether that's another human being or it's an animal or it's a plant, you know, we can really think about this. It's, oh, wait a minute. Hmm, is that really going to be the best decision? If I do that, this being will suffer and this being will suffer and this being will suffer. The whole world will suffer just because I want to do this. Maybe I shall not do this. Maybe there's another path. Then we have increased capacity for communication and understanding in the relaxation response. We can think clearly. So we can really see that this is the state that we want to all be in, that this is the state that we're trying to coax ourselves into, to break the cycle of violence in the world. We must break that cycle within ourselves. We have to talk ourselves down from the cliff and move into the safe, connected valley of relaxation more and more we move towards there. This is the work of yoga. Whatever practice you do, remember this. On days when you feel I cannot do full Ashtanga yoga primary series, no problem. Remember, I'm working to retrain the habit pattern of my mind. Sometimes we can be violent towards ourselves with the practice. You know, we can force our body to do things the body is not ready to do because we've taken a different, we've take, imported the standard of the world into our practice. So we want to moment by moment, watch the cycles of violence. Watch how addicted we are to that. Watch how familiar we are to that. How acclimated we are to sort of the status quo of abuse that we hurl towards ourselves and hurl towards others. And then remember Patanjali's action and, and, and advice. Number one, don't act when you're in that state. Number two, try to plant the seeds of a positive thought, something else. If you notice yourself hating yourself, sometimes it's too big of a jump to go to loving yourself. And this is why ahimsa is an important word. If you notice, and I have, I have done this many times myself, you look down at your body and there's some body part you hate. Everybody, we have some body part we don't. I don't know anybody. Even like supermodel that is, you know, they ask them what body, they all have some body part they don't like. You have some body part you don't like. Whatever it is, you're, you're having a wonderful day. Casually, you look in the mirror and you see that hated body part and you think, ugh, ruins the next few moments of your life. Oh, there it is. My ankle. I saw the ankle. I hate the ankle. I have such ugly ankles. And you look at somebody else's ankle. Oh, what a nice ankle, you know, or whatever body part. Some people hate their nose, their butt, their, you know, and then we do this thing where we speak the language of hate over the body. We, we, um, you know, either we, we give the body part a name and then this name ends up so uh, shared that it enters into pop culture. So we have, well, what's one that uh, is like now in headlines of weird fitness blogs, muffin top, right? So we have this muffin top thing. First of all, what is wrong with the muffin top? I like muffin tops. Muffin top, the, part of, the best part of the muffin is the top, first of all, number one. Well, I don't want the bottom of the muffin. 
give it to the birds. So first of all, I think it's a positive, this muffin top thing. But second of all, then this is a way that we've taken some wonderfully tasty, delicious item and turned it into a body negative. So that, oh, my, oh, my muffin top, I can't wear these jeans. We walk by. So that moment of hatred, in that moment that you're saying muffin top hate, it's not like you're going to go from there to, and I love my body, I'm beautiful. It's too hard. This is why ahimsa is important. We understand nonviolence. So we recognize, oh, that was an act of violence. I was being violent towards my body. I was engaging in self-judgment, self-loathing, self-directed negativity. Okay, what can I do? I cannot love the body. Let me just refrain from hating. So then we just refrain in that moment. So we realize, okay, here is the cycle. I breathe, I take a breath, and then we just look at the muffin top and try not to hate it. That's the first step. Then after some time, then maybe we move even into love of muffin top. You know, we can think, oh, even I love this. Muffins are wonderful. Maybe you can give it the flavor of your favorite muffin, like blueberry. I've always loved blueberry muffins, especially when they have big, juicy blueberries inside. So like this, we can slowly move on a scale of emotions away from violence to nonviolence, ending in the state of maitri, of friendliness. And this is a way that we can actively participate in making our world a more peaceful place. And I want us to understand, especially during these times when there's so much violence, so much fear, so much negativity, that our work is so important. As we, the yoga practitioners of the world, the spiritual practitioners of the world, we have work to do. Our work is to anchor the vibration of ahimsa, of nonviolence. And your work matters. Statistically, there's, I think it's the, it's like the square root of 0.1% of a population engaged as a spiritual, in a spiritual practice has the ability to create what's called the Maharishi effect or to create more peace in the world around. And this has been documented by placing meditators, spiritual practitioners in some of the most violent communities of the world. So if you are in a city or a country that, that has violence and fear, the number one thing that you can do to make the world a better place, remove that seed of violence within yourself, do your meditation practice every day, do your yoga practice every day, and spend time at the end of practice to spread peace, harmony, and love outward from yourself. Think of all the suffering beings who are caught in their own cycles of violence, perpetrators, victims, people playing and claiming the false role of the hero, engaging in a perpetual cycle of violence, and send them out the intention that they wake up from their delusion, that they can break that cycle of violence. No matter how much someone has harmed you, you can always, always pray for that person to wake up from their misery, to wake up from their delusion, to find the tools of the spiritual practice. That's something you can, you can offer towards everyone, no matter how, how much somebody has harmed you or your community. Because if you rationally think about it, if that being were to wake up from their misery and recognize how they have been violent, the world would be a better place. You can't change them, but you can pray for them to change themselves, for them to find the same tools that have led you towards liberation. Now, it is said that we're all trying to find enlightenment. We're all out here trying to find our path to some sort of, you know, final state of enlightenment. But what we kind of think about is how much we have removed the seeds of hatred, negativity, bitterness within ourselves to that degree 
our natural state of luminosity or light can shine through. So work on that each day of the practice and you're, you will make a difference in the world. Send that out into the world and we have the ability to make our world a more peaceful place. It will be reflected back at you first in your closest relationships. Your relationships with your family will improve. Then it will be reflected outward so that even your casual interactions with people will improve. It will be reflected outward eventually in the whole world one day, maybe thousands of generations in the future when the whole world will be at peace. I don't know when that day comes, but I know we're planting the seeds of it today, each time we practice. So I see that there are some questions. So I'm going to look in the chat. I saw one uh, question that was coming up. I will read the question. Vivian has asked this question. How do I balance going through the flow, working on difficult poses that I get stuck during the practice? I find myself losing momentum when I reach a pose that I can't do like Supta Kormasana and the rest of the series gets not as motivated. Let me tell you, everybody, we feel like this. You know, we feel it's really easy to stay motivated when you feel like you're good at something. Oh, I can do this. Yeah, I can do this. Ah, Awesome. Or even just, I don't suck at this, you know? Like we feel like we have some sense about it. So whenever there's an asana that's really overwhelming, Supta Kramasana is one of these asanas that some people practice the whole life, they never get it, right? It's okay. You know, what we want to look for in in these asanas that are really, really difficult is that we are actually using the difficulty, the challenge to bring up how our mind reacts to challenge. So that very state of lack of motivation, that very state of now I feel like a mess, now I feel like this is terrible, I can't do this either, I can't do that either, I should just quit, that state is what you're working with. So be aware of that, feel that, and then see if you can recognize, oh, look, here I am hating myself because I can't do Supta Kramasana. Here I am hating the practice because somebody invented this posture, you know? And then we observe that. Number two, Always make sure you have a safe, healthy modification that's right for you. You want to always make sure, okay, I can't do this pose. What can I do instead? This will help you feel like there's some progress that you're making. And this is important because you don't want to try to do something that's beyond the bounds of what's your physical potential in that moment. Instead, always look for a safe modification that can make the posture accessible for you. Based on your body, best to figure out the modifications that are best for your body based on what's appropriate for where you're working. And I find that as long as you have a program, now it's Supta Kramasana time, this is what I do. Even if someone else is doing something else, as long as you yourself have a program, your mind is sort of, okay, this is what I do, I'm doing it. And that's fine. But if you don't, if you don't have a program, the mind just starts to go crazy. Third thing, in the traditional practice, we, I always teach that we should have maximum, in your practice, one major challenge one thing that feels overwhelming. The whole practice can't feel overwhelming. Otherwise you get off the mat and you just feel like, oh, oh, that was awful. I survived. We don't want that. You want to generally feel like the practice is going well. And then one asana is kind of like you're battling with that. One is a project. I do this, I do that. I don't know. The leg is here. It's there. I jump back. I don't jump back. I twist. I don't know. So you have one major event that you work through. All right. If Supta Kramasana is your event, work that event. And then everything else after that can be easy. Or if you're practicing traditional Mysore style, maybe you don't go beyond that. Then you can repeat your project three or four times. Okay, let's see if there are some other questions. I'm going to scroll down in the chat. 
Okay. Kelly's asking a question that happens quite often, which is that the, she says, my right ankle gets stiff and hurts for a few seconds coming out of Lotus and Half Lotus. This is a really common thing to have happen. Ankle pain when we're moving into Lotus position is quite normal. We want to make sure that our Lotus position is safely executed. So make sure that your foot is not sickling. So make sure that the toes are not the only thing that's on your thigh. You want to make sure you have your whole foot resting on your thigh. If your foot is sickling so that the, major- the ankle is falling off of your thigh, then you can be overstretching the tendons of your ankle. And this is not a good lotus position. So in your lotus position, please be sure that the entire foot, especially the instep of the foot, is resting on the hip crease. We can pull the foot more up and make sure that the thigh supports the ankle. Now, number three about that, okay? We think about what's happening in the ankle. If all of that is established, the instep of the foot is fully supported by the hip crease and you still have a little bit of ankle pain coming out, this is unfortunately something that will get better over time. It takes about three months of consistent practice and the ankle strengthens. Postures like Janushasana C, which are nobody's favorites, will strengthen your ankle and help you feel better in that lotus position. Lastly, keep your ankle a little bit engaged. This will help find just a little bit of stability in the posture and make sure that you're not overdoing it. Okay, Sophie asks a practical question for sun salutation B. How many of them should we be doing? So there's a rough hand rule that says you want to do five sun salutation A and the three sun salutation B. But the rule is flexible. This is important. We hear it once and then we're like, now forevermore, that's the way to go. And we put our blinders on and it gets very disturbing for us if it changes. So then we see somebody, they did 5B. We're like, you did 5B. We're only supposed to do 3B. You have done extra. Or then even worse, you saw somebody, they did only two. Ah, you have cheated. You have done only two. You know, this is flexible. The sun salutations are there to generate heat in the body and to generate focus in the mind. If you're in the very cold room, the room is freezing and you don't have a heater, please, you can do more sun salutation. Even you can do 7A, you can do 7B. Then for sure, your body will be very warm. You'll also be very tired, but they can really heat the body up. You don't need to do like 108 of them. This is, you know, there's this kind of trend going around that you do 108 sun salutations every January 1st or something like that. Uh, if you, if this is something that brings you joy, by all means, go for that. I, I, this would not bring me joy, uh, especially not on New Year's Day. Uh, I like to go to the beach on the New Year's Day. It's might nicer for me than doing 108 sun salutations. I think maybe five of them, good for me. So anyhow, what I mean to say is that even you can do less. If you're in a place that's so hot, so warm, then you do two sun salutation A, the sweat is pouring off of your body. No, no, only two sun salutations. Your body is warm. Fine, stop it. You don't need to do more. It's adjustable. So again, generally the shorthand, 5A, 3B. This is kind of standard. If you're normal, you're not overheating, you know, it's not freezing in the room where you are. This is the normal sort of parameter to work. But please remember that it's not the absolute dogma. This is flexible, adjustable according to your body. Okay? This is true with the entire practice as well. All right. As Stephanie asked the question, 
is it okay to drink water during the practice? I get super thirsty. I need to order, or should I drink more water before practice? If so, how much time before practice? Number one, if at all possible, please not, don't drink during the practice. You're working on the organ system. If you start to drink during the practice, this is changing the resting state of the organ system. Number two, the practice is built on the internal fire. And I think everybody knows what the natural opposite of fire is. What would you say? Water. It was a really hard question. Okay. So what are you going to do when your body is heating up from the inside? If you take a glass of water and you pour it in, then you cool the fire. So this is just not the most logical thing to do, even from this standpoint. Lastly, when we think about what's happening is that we've often been trained in terms of like exercise physiology. We're like, go to the gym, the gym you know, the gym, oh, take a sip of water, stay hydrated. So then we get that we're on like the hydration train. I'm going to stay hydrated. So it's okay not to drink during the practice unless you have a medical reason. Some people, they have uh, type 1 diabetes and the blood sugar drops really low and they need to have a little sip of sugar water. This is a medical condition. If you're pregnant, sip of water, stop yourself from overheating, no problem. Barring any medical condition that you would need to drink water, try not to drink during the practice. Instead, stop drinking water about 30 minutes before practice. If you drink a gigantic you know, bottle of water, I've done this once before. Like I've t- t- taken this and been like, I'm so thirsty because I practiced later in the day. I had a whole thing of water, you know? And then you finish sun salutation B and you're like, oh, I have to go to the bathroom. So we don't want to disturb the, you know, the organ system and the bladder. 30 minutes prior, just a light sip of water, a glass, one glass of water. Don't drink like a liter of water. After practice, give yourself you know, the final relaxation take sips of water after and try to bring in the water slowly after practice. And this will help your body equalize. I'm a big fan of drinking water. I drink water first thing in the morning. I think this is a wonderful time to drink a, like a, like a two glasses of water first thing in the morning. Um, and then throughout the day, uh, probably the best thing you can do for your body is just to constantly sip water regularly, you know, rather than all at once. This is also something just to think about. Hydration is extremely important, but during the practice, we're trying to purify in a different way. Okay. Also food, please don't take food breaks during practice. All right. I think this goes without saying, but you never know. Sometimes, you know, you could have a little uh, sandwich and uh, think you need a little snack halfway through. Again, no food breaks during the practice. Also, no vodka breaks and no margaritas during the practice or anything else that you might use to distract yourself. Okay? All right. So we have the next question. I think I saw some people asking about the hamstrings. Cassidy asks, how did you get your hamstrings to open up? I've been practicing primary series, half primary usually for a year and a half, and still have lots of difficulty in the forward folds. And then... um, uh, Gautier, I think, maybe. If I pronounced your name wrong, I apologize. Says the same question, and she says she's even injured the hamstring. Okay, first of all, I'm so sorry you've injured your hamstring. The hamstring injury is a terrible thing to have come into practice. Many students have the hamstring injury at the attachment level, and this, unfortunately, uh, around the sitting bone, if this happens, it takes a long time to heal, and you need to give it the full time to heal. You want to be, instead, targeting the work of your forward bends in the belly of the muscle in your hamstrings. And the hamstring muscles often need to be warmed up a lot in order to open. Number two, the hamstring muscles need their antagonistic muscle group, your quadriceps, to be fully engaged 
in order to feel safe to release. Now, the other thing that, that is sort of the hidden story of forward bends is that you need to relax your back muscles. If you're tensing your back muscles, your hamstrings won't release because tension of the back muscles is tension of the back body, which is sending the signal to your hamstrings to tense. So we have to relax the back muscles as well. So you're thinking about round your back a little bit. This can help. Last thing that I recommend if you really want the hamstrings to open is to, when the body is warmed up, find a sense of ease and flow so that you, I, when I first started doing the practice, I, you know, I'm from Florida, it's really warm here. So I didn't need to warm the body. It's like warm first thing in the morning, quite often here, you know, it's cold inside our houses in Florida and then hot outside, uh, you know, like it is in many tropical or, or desert places. So I, when I first started practicing, I couldn't do the forward bend. I couldn't touch my toes. Hard for everyone to believe, but it's true. I could not touch my toes. I remember thinking, how am I going to touch these toes? They're so far away. I'm never a dancer. I'm never a gymnast. I didn't know how to stretch or anything like that. I did some aerobics, you know, and then, you know, if you know about the methodology of aerobics, it's like calorie burning. It's not really like, let's move into lightly stretching the bodies. It's like burn maximum calories. So then I remember I started yoga. The, how am I going to get the forward bend to open? So I would, I make tea every morning and I would put the kettle on. While the kettle was on, I would drape my arms over each other like this and just relax and fold forward. Try to bend the knees a little. I would do that. And then, you know, depending on where you are in the world, that's a good amount of time as you're waiting for the water to boil. So I would do that almost every day to start the day to help the muscles release, to help the nervous system release. The key if you're doing a stretch like that is it has to be with no goal, no time frame, and infinite patience is the only thing that will bring a good state of mind with that. So in other words, I think a little extracurricular stretching outside of primary series may be good for you to release the forward bends. Last thing about forward bends, this is a piece of information that nobody really likes to hear, but there, there is a, a relationship to the health of our organ system and our forward folds. If your organ system is not so healthy, it'll be difficult for you to forward fold. And this can mean not so much the size or shape of the body, but how flexible the organ system is. So if your organ system gets more and more healthy, you're eating better foods, thinking better thoughts, drinking a lot of good, clean water, then slowly, slowly the organ system is getting more and more healthy. There's more space. There's more flexibility in the abdomen. This can really improve your forward bends. So when you think about that, we can think about if you've never done a cleanse, doing a cleanse can really make a, 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 a sometimes an impact on, our, on your forward fold. So you can explore those options. I, there are many different ways to do a cleanse. If you've never done that before, I can recommend to work with the nutritionists so that they can do a bit of blood work to find out what's going to be best for you to make sure that you're not harming your body or engaging in kind of you know fake diet culture where you're like, I'm going to cleanse and it's really like, I want to get rid of my muffin top again. So we don't want to approach it from that perspective. It's like, if there's unhealth in my organ system, I want to bring good energy flowing in my body. All right. Let's see some other questions that have arisen. Okay. Sometimes Maya asks, sometimes during my practice, my mind wants to do so fast primary series and it's so hard to slow down this stressful thinking. How can I handle that? How can I handle that with a, without forcing, I'm guessing, or how can I handle that? Okay. So we work with the tool of the breath whenever the mind is stimulated. <clears throat> Always work with the tool of the breath whenever the mind is stimulated. So if you feel that, if you feel that you want to go faster, 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 I want to go here, I want to do that, I want to go here, I want to do that, 
Pause, stop the practice for a moment. Completely stop. Close your eyes. 10 deep breaths. Back to your breath, back to your body. And then start again. So we stop, we break the cycle, and then feel. You'll feel there's some emotional presence there. And your job in that moment is to get intimate with that emotion. What am I running from? Why do I need this to go so fast? What am I running from? You'll feel it. There'll be like anxiety or there'll be some kind of stress. There'll be something there. And oh, this is what I'm running from. Instead of running, I just feel and breathe. Then start again. If it happens again, stop the practice. Close your eyes. Again, feel. What is the energy I'm running from? Back to your pelvic floor, back to your breath. Okay. We're going to take maybe two more questions. So I'll scroll through and see. <clears throat> Mallory asked the question if I could, uh, if I'm able to speak about the study about the, what's called the Maharishi effect, the square root of 1% of the community has an impact out there. There are, this is written, this is, uh, I can't remember the, the name of the group that did this study, but you can just Google Maharishi effects and this will come up in numerous articles all over the internet. And it's referred to in numerous books uh, in the realm of positive psychology that study the impact of our state of happiness on ourselves and on our world. Maharishi effect, as in Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the Maharishi effect, because the first group of meditators that this was studied with were those practicing transcendental meditation. Okay. Now, Jess asks a really good question about the wrists. This is often happening for many people. So Jess says, by the end of practice, my wrists are super sore. Will they strengthen over time? Is there anything I can do to help? So I've had a lot of wrist injuries in my practice and in my life, most often from life, not from practice. I got the wrist injury from teaching actually a lot, from grabbing you know, people's like, arms and pulling them over here and pulling. And then suddenly in my thumb, was really weakened. And I had to take a big break from, from assisting and teaching um, and even impacted my own practice. So if you have weak wrists, you can do a little bit of wrist warm-up. And there are a lot of wrist warm-ups that you can do. If you have tight wrists, it may be helpful to stretch your wrists a little bit before practice. So there are a lot of different things that you can do. Number two, make sure that you're not dumping your weight into your wrists. Normally when our shoulders are weak, we can feel like we're dumping weight into the hands and the wrists. So then you want to make sure that your whole body is lifting up out of, the, out of the hands so that you're doing work with the shoulders and with the core and with the other muscles of the body, not just dumping weight into the hands. Lastly, make sure you're not hyperextending your wrists. So that make sure that when you lean forward, your shoulder doesn't go beyond your fingertips. If your shoulder goes beyond the fingertips, then you're hyperextending the wrists. And if you do that consistently, like in all your chaturangas and up dogs and all your lift ups, that's going to give you wrist pain by the end of practice. The very last thing you can do at the end of practice, a little bit of self-care for your wrists. Uh, after you get up from your final relaxation, you can give yourself a little self-massage over the wrist. This can be really helpful. Just do a little wrist release work, pull, you know, uh, pull the, the flesh down and then just move your hands around and give a little wrist release work. If you're doing Meister style practice or even in a guided class at any moment, if you need to sit out or jump back and jump through because it's bothering your wrists, you're always welcome to do that. Okay. Now let's take maybe one more question. Here's a practical question uh, from Erica. When should we start trying to do dropbacks in the primary series and can we use the wall? So if you have finished the primary series and you feel like I have a lot of energy, you know, I'm finished with primary series and I have a lot of energy and I don't have any big 
obstacles in primary series. Supta is not stressful for you anymore. Maybe you do it, you don't do it, but it's not an event. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, here it comes. I don't know what to do. Maybe it doesn't matter. You do it, you don't do it. You, you do it to the best of your ability. You finish primary series, you have energy, you have time. Now this is the appropriate time to think, let me start working on dropbacks. And there are so many ways you can start working on dropbacks, whether it's using the wall or whether it's just hanging back or whether it's working to stand up from Word Vidanyarasana. There are so many ways to start working your backbends and it is super important to start working your backbends, but only when you are energetically ready to do that. Most important thing, if you're thinking about starting to work dropbacks or starting to work deepening your backbend, learn good technique. Please don't just hatch an idea one day. Let me start doing backbends and throw yourself back. Because what will happen is that you will very likely revert to an unhealthy pattern. There are, of course, few people in the world that they can throw themselves back and everything works. I'm not one of those people. The first time I threw myself back, I hatched and I did exactly what I'm telling you not to do. So I'm speaking from experience. I saw somebody do a backbend and then I was at home doing the primary series and I hatched an idea. Let me try to do what I saw this person do in class the other day. I was going to class two days a week and doing it on my own other days. And I thought, let me, I hatched this idea. Let me throw myself back. I hid my head on the wall. I thought, let me go close to the wall. I went way too close to the wall. And then I have had knocked myself out on the wall. And then I thought, oh, well, let me try to stand up. That also didn't go well. I tried to stand up and I fell immediately back on the head. And I thought, this was a bad move. Let me ask the teacher, <laughs> what is a good technique to try this? So I really recommend learn the good technique. You don't want to be hitting your head, you know, knock yourself out, get semi-concussion because you hatched an idea. Now let me try to do backbend. So First of all, ask yourself the question, well, I'm done with primary series, you're a self-practitioner practicing at home. Okay, I'm done with primary series. I've got lots of energy. Everything feels good. Oh, maybe it's appropriate for me to start deepening my back bend. Then number two, consult a teacher. Whether that's you know taking a Mysore style class over Zoom right now or going into an in-person class where you can get direction or even taking a private lesson or even just watching a video that has backbending technique. Some information so that you can feel like you're moving healthfully, with good alignment, with intelligence, this is extremely important. And this is true for any movement you want to do in the body. It's better to ask somebody that's been there before for a little bit of advice. This is what the importance of a teacher is about. It's, you know, the idea that, hey, I want to go here. What's the best way? Now, almost everybody, when you want to go to some place you've never been before, you open up your phone and you take Google Maps and then you put in the address and Google Maps tells you where to go. The body is just like that. We need some sort of GPS. We need some sort of guidance. This is what, how the teacher can be so helpful. Oh, I want to go to this place in my body. I've never been before. Sure, you can try, but highly likely you're going to get lost along the way. You reach a dead end, maybe even get a broken tire, you know, and then you're lost and you need to get the help anyway. If you just start from the beginning, very much like the Google map, you can just get there, you know, in whatever time is appropriate. I'm not saying you're not going to hit traffic jams, but even the Google map will alert you to potential traffic jams. Your teacher, the same way. Hey, this might be a little hard. This might be a little challenge. Maybe you're going to be stuck there for a little while, but eventually this is the way. I've been there before. I got stuck at that same place. And let's do this together. So this is something that's extremely important and why the relationship with the teacher is important in your yoga practice. You know, yoga teachers, not gods, not saints, 
We're people with experience in both the inner tradition and the physical tradition of yoga that can share with you just a little bit of insights, very much like the Google map. I call this deferential authority, which is not absolute authority. What this means is that out of the intelligence of my mind, I realize that I don't know the way, so I'm going to defer to the Google map. I realize I don't know the way of how to do backbend, so I'm going to defer to the intelligence of my teacher and the experience of my teacher. Just in the same way, there are times when Google Maps tells you to take a right turn. I don't know if this ever happened to you, but like the, you're going, and especially if you put Waze and it's a trafficy time, then so the Waze app, and if, if anybody doesn't know the Waze app, it sort of roots around traffic. And Waze will say, take a right. And you're like, I, 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 I don't really want to take a right. I know the way. I've gone this way. Then anyhow, if you're a good student, you take the right turn, even if you're doubting. And then you have found that Waze is intelligent. It has rerouted you around some new accident that was over there. You think, oh, Waze is wonderful. Then after you have numerous experiences like that, you really trust the app. And your teacher should be the same way, verified with empirical evidence that when I trust what my teacher says, things work out. If when you trust your teacher, things don't work out, (laughs) you need to somehow think about maybe something's, maybe this uh, GPS is wrong. And bring that up as feedback to your teacher. Don't just go away and never tell them. Just, you know, like if you had a a map app on your phone and it always led you in the wrong direction, you would leave some feedback on the app store. This is a bad app. Got me lost. Got the broken tire. Then also you have to tell your teacher. If your teacher is giving you uh, advice that's leading to something not working out in your body, please tell your teacher. They're a human being. They need to know. They need that feedback. Yoga teachers cannot be surrounded only with people that give them praise. You have to also say, hey, this didn't really work out for me. You know, I, you, I advise that I do this and it didn't work. It hurt a little bit. Share that feedback. This will make your relationship stronger and will give your teacher the opportunity to grow as a teacher. And it also humanizes the relationship, which is so important in this day and age. Good. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining. I have really enjoyed spending this time with you. Uh, and we're going to end with uh, one of the Shanti mantras. So if you'll close your eyes and bring your hands together. Purnamadak Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishyate Om Shanti 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 Thank you so much, everyone. Really great to spend this time with you. Next week at the nine o'clock, I'm teaching again. And the conference next week is with a special guest, Hamish Hendry from London. Hamish is one of... Uh, one of the first people I ever met in Mysore. He's a wealth of information and the conference is available for everyone. If you can only join the conference, that's okay too. Um, I'll be teaching from nine to 11 and then Hamish conference will start at 11. Hamish is going to talk about the, about the yogic teaching stories from the Mahabharata and then he'll be available to take some questions after. Please don't miss the conference. Even if you cannot come for the practice, I'd love to see you in the practice. Please come for the conference. It's a really special treat to hear those stories from Mahabharata as really only Hamish can tell these days. So again, thank you so much. And I hope to see you again really soon. Have a beautiful day. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. 
Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.